0: In today's episode, we talk peacebuilding and why Libya is the exception to traditional models. We'll look at local versus national and try to find that sweet spot in between. Our guest today is Jeff Howard, a Libya analyst with over 10 years of experience and immense expertise in conflict resolution. Enjoy the episode. Hi, Marwa. Hi, Enhem. How's it going? Good. We've had a busy, uh, busy period here.
1: Yeah, it's been quite busy. Over the past two weeks,
0: I would say. So I want to talk about the event we had. Of course you do. (laughs) Hisham Matar. Yes. Ian Martin. George the Poet. I feel we peaked.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I mean, try topping that now, right? uh,
0: We will work on it. Um, I feel like we got so excited we did them all at once. So we had this incredible event where we discussed sort of all things Libya with very, I thought, three very different perspectives. Hisham brought... um, as he always does, a very elegant reflection on what it you know, what the personal struggle is and kind of framing it, I think, in a really interesting historical context, which I think often gets with missed.
1: humor as well. Humor. I mean
0: I I appreciated that. Yes, and 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 buckets of charm, which yes. is always helpful. Um then we had Ian, so Ian Martin was obviously the first special representative um in Libya with With mixed uh, reviews i I sense um, but he he was good at reflecting on the international role and the sort of historical international in Libya, but also about the challenges of it, and I think he brought nuance and self-reflection in a in a sort of humble way, I thought on what was going on and then obviously George
1: there's also the Raya intervention, yes. which I thought was was quite powerful.
0: so who's Raya? Um, we should tell our audience yeah. You
1: can introduce her. So Raya. Raya
0: is an incredible activist that we've worked with for a few years now in Libya and um, has worked relentlessly. I mean, she is she's problematic in some ways because she's the kind of person that if something goes wrong, she runs to it instead of runs away from it, which from the perspective of documenting violations is is great. But from the perspective of someone who's responsible for her as her employer, I'm terrified constantly about her well-being. But she has been crucial to us figuring out what's going on on the ground since, you know, 4th of April started. Um, and we were due to welcome her um, last week here in London to, d- to have her talk about what she's been seeing and to bring a firsthand experience from the ground. But uh, unfortunately, but not unsurprisingly, her visa was declined by the, by the Home mm-hmm. Office here um, on what I think are, is a very gendered, Basis, mm-hmm. um, and I think we'll we'll probably pick that up in our episode on on women in conflict yeah. and, and how they're particularly um, singled out for for being single women.
2: Yeah, for being single <laughs> women,
0: exactly. But you know, I think that was really upsetting. Um, but what she did do instead was write a most moving intervention um, that I struggled to get through. So I was the opposite of Hisham's elegance in my performance. <laughs> um but know, was,
1: equally powerful I thought it was is uh was it was quite a powerful um intervention
0: can we make sure this gets into the episode that my intervention was equated with Hisham's this is a <laughs> personal career highlight um and yeah so I think that was it was really it was really difficult for me to deliver but I think she particularly found it so um she found it so hum like so humbling to her that she was sort of included on the panel um, and I think it meant a lot to her. Now, we still need to f- get her to London so that she can talk to people. Yeah, but, I'd love to meet her as well, right? But what's really what's really exciting is that all of this will be uh, featured as a podcast on uh, a different episode on the podcast. So mm-hmm. we've got it all recorded. And guys, listen up. You'll be able to hear everything we've just said in much better words because it will actually be Hisham's words and Ian's words and Rawia's words instead of in more our detail. interpretations yeah. of them. Um did you want to say anything about anything specifically that came up that you found interesting? Any points that came oh, up? My highlight,
1: obviously, was George the Poet. I, I hadn't heard his podcasts before that. And so I was deeply moved by... I could uh, see you were crying. Oh, yeah. <laughs> no, I teared. I did. Um, because it just captured so eloquently, so beautifully. No, I I mean, I can just go on. I am a fan now. It was It was really powerful um, his performance in the end and it really brought it home the entire event
0: so I had actually listened to the episode before obviously but he actually updated it for the performance last week and that was that took me by surprise because I thought I had nailed the fact that I would not cry anymore and then he added a bit and I was like oh damn it he got me again Um, but yeah so George I'm sure most of our (laughs) listeners will know him better than they know us Um, has got the most pop the sort of most successful podcast of the year uh, here in the uk um and so we're grateful that he's given us some of his time as well okay so um one of the themes that's been coming up in meetings and also came up at this event we keep talking about was the idea of political negotiations and trying to find a settlement or a ceasefire for what's happening in libya and it's a topic that is um is being covered a lot in the, in, the, in the domestic media in Libya and people are talking about it, but we keep hearing terms and I'm not sure I always even I always understand what these terms are. So we, we've heard of Sherat. We've heard of the Libya political agreement, the LPA. We had the national dialogue. Can you name any? Oh, we had the Haftar proposal for a, a ceasefire. And obviously last week or the week before the Sarraj proposal. So I think it'd be really helpful to just actually go through what those means, but also on just to look at the anatomy of what a peace deal looks like and what that really means. And I'm really excited that we have um, someone with immense experience in this uh, joining us today, Jeff Howard, who is uh, a Libya an- an analyst and uh, for over
1: ten years. For over ten oh, years, pre
0: 2011. I need to. I really need to highlight. We must that. emphasize that. So he knows Libya before, during, and hopefully we'll know it after um, this process. Um, and we're just excited to be able to talk through this with you, Jeff. And um, maybe I'll just start with a really basic question. So when we're talking about a, a peace deal or a conflict resolution process, what, is that really, what does that really mean?
2: So I think it um, has different meanings in different contexts and at different times. And this is part of the problem. So as you said, there are lots of words and phrases banded around political settlement, elite bargain, that kind of thing. You know, I think at at the most basic and general level, you have two processes that can work concurrently. You have one whose specific task is to end violence. And that is often called um, a kind of elite bargain deal. So essentially, the warring parties agree to stop violence because, um, say, they carve up access to resources and so forth. And then then that has to slot into a longer-term process that essentially tries to create the basics of a new political structure. And that is a kind of political settlement. So essentially, the way in which politics flows from an elite-level bargain. Um, And politics in all of its means, so the control of violence, institutions, these kind of things. And I think one of the problems in the Libyan context is that We've had flare-ups of violence, but violence has not been that intense, and there has been no clear resolution on the battlefield. And I think that's one of the key principles from conflict resolution theory, is that actually conflicts are resolved militarily, first and foremost. And then what flows from that is a political deal. Um, So arguably in Libya, there has been no clear resolution to the conflict since 2011 perhaps
0: and that's because we haven't had enough fighting
2: i would hate to say that um i think it's possibly a result of libya's relatively unique social political economic structure highly highly fragmented so essentially you you know you have this coalition of um highly localized political and economic groups none of which is able to dominate um, and I think what that means is that you have a, a conflict that is inherently much, much more difficult to resolve. So firstly, a conflict that's difficult to resolve, and then secondly, a political settlement that's incredibly hard to negotiate off the back of that, because you have nothing really that's unifying in terms of people or structures or you know, financial incentives and so forth. So actually, the, the traditional m- mechanisms that you would use are not really there.
0: So can we have like so can we think of examples? Because uh, obviously, we always think that Libya is exceptional because we work on it, and so you always think what you're doing is really different. And we hear that a lot. No, Libya is different. Libya is an exception. Um, and my concern when I hear that is that actually does that feed into the it feeds into the whole thing. Oh well, that's why it's just in, it's never going to be resolvable. It's intractable, like because we all kind of keep buying into this exceptionalism of the Libyan situation. Um, and I wonder whether it's it's good to break that down a little bit more to understand what is it about the Libyan situation that's so different, um, and perhaps where there is a little bit of sort of relative similarity with other situations that we could learn from.
2: Yeah, it's a it's a interesting point. Um, I think I'm probably often guilty of the argument that Libya is an exception, and I think it is partly. That's not to say that there aren't solutions. I mean, there there are there are solutions. I think what the exception of the Libyan case proves is that there have to be slightly different solutions. And I think one of the you know a lot of research I do looks at established conflict theory and essentially why it's not really totally applicable to the Libyan case. And I think, and this was the focus of my doctoral research, and 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 when and how and if I do that is a subject of yeah. a different. Uh, we all have our little conversations. But, so I, so when I was when I was doing some doctoral research and and some of my other research on this, so I, I sort of identify three features of the Libyan conflict that that I think don't fit into, uh, or, or means that that Libya doesn't neatly fit into current conflict theory. Um, so the first is that the state is not an autonomous um, or powerful actor and it sort of faces multiple competing sources of credibility and so forth. Um, the second, that warring parties are not well-defined and actually the hierarchy of power is unclear and constantly shifting. And, and that hierarchy of power, I mean, both political but also on the battlefield. Um, and the third is that informal power structures actually act as the kind of primary mechanisms for resolving disputes and so what so essentially what that means is that traditional approaches whereby the focus is always on a national level political deal right so a national level political deal that aims to bring together all of the all of the main people and to fold them to fold them underneath a deal that then flows down through centralized institutions and structures and so forth none of so that process is completely unable to capture those three, um, uh, problems essentially so that, you know, the LPA, so you, you mentioned the LPA, this was a kind of elite or, or kind of a higher national level elite deal that was completely unable to capture essentially the way politics worked in Libya. So it, it completely ignored the main mechanisms for politics involved the local level disputes in it, 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 it sorry it ignored the local level disputes it ignored the local level power brokers and and then uh, you know the, but but then there is a problem with that because what you don't want to do is in, institutionalized fragmentation um you don't want to give disproportionate power to highly localized actors so so i think it's kind of a question so the 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 sweet spot you need to find, and, and we're all trying to find it, is to bridge the local and national so that you have a process that does build up national level institutions, which you need, but actually doesn't simultaneously undermine that process by ignoring the very local level, if that, if that makes
1: sense. That's a very interesting um, and very concise analysis of, of a complex situation. Um, but I just want to go back to um, the LPA for a moment before we move forward, because I think that that really, 2014 really was kind of the turning point. There was, I, I agree in in to a large extent that the conflict has been ongoing since 2011. Um, yes, we had elections in 2012, and but there were still obviously um small pockets of of conflicts or or as you call them uh, lower level um conflicts that were ongoing in the south and the east and, and even in 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 the west at the time but would it be perhaps an overgeneralization to say that the uh, that the LPL that the LPA or its Inability to capture or to solve, or its failure ultimately, um, is because it didn't capture the three features, um, or essentially being an elite uh, agreement.
2: So I think there's um, there's a sort of, and th- this is what I was talking about about the kind of middle ground sweet spot, and this is you know. If we... so I, I'll, I'll come back to the LPA, but I think if, you, if we use contemporary examples to try and flesh this out, you know, the, the national conference that was supposed to happen 10 days before, after I launched his most recent offensive, so that, that national conference was a very grassroots, local-level initiative. And at the same time, that's what it was designed to be. And, and at the same time, the Abu Dhabi process was meant to be this high-level um, political deal my argument was always that actually what we needed was something more in the middle. So I think both processes have a value to them, but actually what you want is um, something in between that that, that's not too narrow and not too broad. I think with the LPA, um, I think what it was unable to do was to adapt to a situation on the ground that, that changed very quickly. So 2014... When the conflict arose, it it very quickly morphed into um, two very broad camps, allied uh, sort of aligned around the two institutions of the GNC and and the HOr. That actually very quickly broke down, uh, and those camps fractured, and alliances shifted, and so forth. But the LPA process remained very focused on those two camps, and it was all very focused around institutions that had no credibility, no no purchase locally, and so forth. So I think this is. This is kind of my point around, so I, I'm not advocating that a new process needs to be built around these the three issues that I outlined before, because I think I, in many respects, it's not possible to design a process that um, is that locally specific. But I think my argument is that actually a process that doesn't factor in how you deal with that is not going to work. This potentially raises the problem that That actually means that at the moment a political process is not possible. I mean, that's a that's that's a controversial thing to say.
0: But that that kind of is where it feels like we're heading, right? So if we're if we're thinking that the the models we've applied so far are are not specific to Libya, so they don't deal with Libya's exceptionalism, Um, but also that actually they don't seem to have the correct actors. Involved because otherwise, for you to mobilize a a plan, you need people who can be the actors to to action it. Um, And so, that brings me to an interesting, in my an interesting question, I guess, which is, if the if we think of a purpose of approach to to a political process, which is effectively to end violence, I think that's what we said, and to to look to look forward. So it's to end the past and to look forward to the next phase. then who do we need to, who do we need to include in those processes because i feel at the moment for me that's the biggest problem is that we aren't looking at the builders we're only ever addressing the spoilers to try to bring them and so we're only focusing on one part of it which is the ending the violence but actually those actors are benefiting from the violence and the instability and the lack of uncertainty and that's where they get their if you like legitimacy from then what is what is the what is their role in the building process and or is it two different processes do they need to be kind of separated but for me i think the who should be included who should be excluded and who decides that is a really interesting question when we're thinking of like designing a better system
2: yeah it's it is it is the question basically it is it is the single most important question because actually designing a peace process should really flow from who's included in it so so what you should try, try and avoid doing is pre-cooking a deal and then inviting people to a table and putting the deal in front of them. And So so essentially the, the most important and also most difficult not to crack is who sits at the table and how you get them to that table. So I- inclusion is the key thing. And I think um, the basic principle is it needs to be all of the people who hold real power and it really needs to be all of them and... and for every constituency you either exclude or exclude themselves, the highlight, the likelihood that the tent will collapse. I think my prob- big problem with Libya, and, and this goes back to the three points that I outlined before, is is how do you identify real and, and credible power brokers? I mean, there is an argument to say that there aren't elites or power brokers in the sen- in the kind of traditional sense. How how do you get enough representatives, for example, from Misrata who have enough buyback and, and and credibility amongst the various sections and subsections of Misrata? And and how do you do that? And so then how do you get people from Misrata to sit down with Eastern constituencies, members of the of the LNA? How do you get them to sit down with people from Bani Walid? How do you get Table to sit down with you know so so I think that the inclusion question is the most important thing. Cracking it is the most difficult thing because, firstly, in order for parties to sit down with each other, there has to be sufficient trust between them. And we're so far away from that being the case.
0: So is then the solution exclusion? And and so the reason I asked that is because The way, again, from a... So this isn't my business. Political negotiations, thank God, is not my business. Um, But from my perspective, I I look at who's at the table. And for me, the the current model seems to reward those who spoil, those who break law, and those who commit violations, because people make themselves indispensable to the process by being the the people who create the violence. And then you need them to end the violence. And so the system that's currently been played out in Libya is one where actually reward, it rewards those who cause the trouble more than those who cease to resolve it. And so my flip on that is to say, okay, so inclusion in Libya isn't working um, because we're not including the right people. Perhaps if the policy is more of exclusion in the sense that if you don't behave in a certain way or you don't meet certain criteria, you we, the brokers of this deal, will put very clear lines and you will be excluded from the from the process, and therefore you don't get the spoils of this war at the end, and perhaps that might change behavior, or that might make people, if you like, take a moment to reflect on their actions, and uh, and there's an opportunity for them to come back to the table if they change behavior. Because I think for me at the moment, all we do is reward bad behavior, um, and you know. We've discussed several times <laughs> this idea that there are lines that need to be drawn, but at the moment the the lines in Libya are drawn around the shapes of certain individuals and they kind of move around them and um, accommodate them regardless of what they do, whereas in my mind, maybe I'm being too legalistic and um, sort of accountability focused in this, but in my mind you put a line to say, okay, if you've committed violations, if you've Embezzled money. If you have held people hostage in cities by cutting out, you know, sup- vital life-supporting facilities, then you do not have a seat in the table, and you're not part of Libya's future. And you stick to that. um That that might actually result with the, with people who are more forward-looking at the table. Or am I being too cutesy and naive in this?
2: No, you're not being cutesy and naive. I suppose. Um... I would say that that excluding people increases the likelihood that they will. Um, and I'm trying to avoid using the word spoil because I don't like it. Um, because, yeah, I, I won't go into that. But um, so I think that the kind of evidence shows that if people are excluded, then they tend to either return to violence, try to undermine and, and spoil a process that takes place without them um so i think i still believe that attempts at inclusion doing it properly um are needed but with the with the realization i mean there there are definitely red lines i mean there are people that you that you do not want around the table
0: but the international community or the brokers. I mean, we can talk a as well in a minute about who the brokers are of these deals. I guess do welcome war criminals. So, what are the red lines if we're allowing war criminals at the table? So, what is our red line? Yes, yeah, so <laughs> our right. alleged war criminals. That's
2: okay. Sorry. Well, I suppose I suppose the the red lines are, are people who are um, either sanctioned or um, designated terrorists or so. But I mean, so but I, I I want to move away slightly because I think the You know, if the priority is to stop fighting and a way to stop fighting is to engage and negotiate and mediate with people who are fighting, then I think you have to necessarily have quite a broad tolerance of people you're willing to negotiate with. As unsavory, I mean, I accept that it's super unsavory. What you need to make sure is that... So I I think what needs to happen more, and this doesn't happen enough, is that accountability measures are built into a peace process and that actually... And and this goes back to the question of trust, right? I mean, one of the reasons why people are fighting is because they don't have trust in each other. And one of the reasons they don't have trust is because of a lack of accountability, because of a lack of a, the rule of law, because it's about retribution, not justice. And and that's a huge problem. So I think to not address those is not getting to the root causes of the conflict.
0: exciting. We have some common ground here, which is incredible, because normally this, this tends to go down to the peace versus justice conversation, which... For any listeners who do law school at any point will will be the bane of your life. But I think for for us, this is exciting to think that we can design a peace process, if you like, that is enshrined in the concept of accountability and the rule of law is frankly a retirement point for me. Um so maybe we can just envisage that. Maybe instead of sort of reflecting on what's gone wrong, if we were to if we were to design something today that might have a chance of something a bit more sustainable in Libya, how would we incorporate this accountability?
1: Just to kind of take that one step further before you answer that, is in terms of the tension that you had um spoken of between the the need to bring in the spoilers, because there will be no peace without the spoilers and and then this the question of um of how to then structure a political process around accountability and so how do we identify there is a tension in there in itself and then how do we um you know build on that
2: yeah um a lot of lot of big litter (laughs) lot of big issues here um so before i i give you all of the solutions i um (laughs) I just want to maybe make a couple of more general points. I mean, I think, so on the idea of exclusion, I think what we've got to be super careful about, firstly, is who has the credibility and mandate to decide inclusion, but actually more importantly, exclusion. And also the fact that exclusion can so easily become weaponized, as can inclusion. So essentially, somebody comes to the table... Because it's going to shaft their opponent, right so I mean so so I think that there has to be that element of of sort of key, of sort of eyes open as you go into the process. I think also I just want to touch briefly on this question of, of kind of elite bargaining, so essentially you know what what a peace process is trying to do is formalize a process of, of elite bargaining. Can
0: we just maybe explain what elite means in that context because I'm not sure how many of our listeners will be kind of fait okay with this lingo? Because I, I struggle with what we mean by elite
2: bargain. So uh, elite bargaining is it's essentially to reflect the balance of power on the ground, reflect the key power constituencies, um, to try and formalize kind of informal processes. So I mean, essentially, the UK's um, elite bargain is reflected in in our House of Commons, our unwritten constitution, and so forth. So it's essentially it's a it's attempts to formalise a degree of political consensus, which takes a lo- really long time. It can be in a constitution, it can be in a kind of um, unwritten informal agreement between people. But I think so. The, the point I wanted to make on on elite bargaining, or or essentially the way politics is done in Libya, is it's not political enough. It is done almost exclusively by security actors and it's done almost exclusively through violence. So for me, like the key priority is changing the calculations of security actors who mediate, negotiate through violence and making them see that political negotiations are the way forward. And that's the key challenge. So, but anyway, um, that's just a few sort of musings on accountability. So, you know, essentially, a lot of the theory that looks at accountability in peace negotiations is a little bit wary and hesitant of um, emphasising it too much in case it excludes people. Um, And um, I think that can be problematic for the reasons I outlined, because I think one of the reasons why people will engage in political processes is that they trust that the outcome will um, be independent and fair and suit their needs and so forth. It strikes me that that's difficult to achieve without there being some trust in the rule of law. And I think what one of the questions I wanted, I've answered none of your questions. One of the questions I wanted to a- ask you back essentially was, you know, it, as Libya analysts, we always seem to circle round and inevitably use the phrase chicken and egg to talk, you know, in every scenario. So we talk about, like, militia, demobilization. They won't do it until such and such has happened and so forth. And so we always talk about chicken and egg. So I wanted to ask you about the development of the rule of law and ask you, essentially, in, like, the step-by-step process of of the development of the rule of law, there needs to be some does that flow from political consensus? Does it flow from institutions? Because there's no trust in institutions and there's no political consensus. So is having a rule of law that's essentially divorced from that? So my question is like, what what comes first? and, And how do we build up trust in the rule of law amongst parties to a conflict as a way to help and the conflict so it's quite a convoluted question i'm just gonna but... say
1: one word and then i'll throw oh, no, it please. to you give me, uh, give me time. accountability justice um the fact that i mean and, and this is in my kind and my thinking is that yes it, it is a complicated and i think that this is what makes it one of the most complicated um situations in libya is, is how do you move with all these different players on the ground, and there's so many layers of uh, of conflict, and so many uh, different um, issues and, and layers to deal with, is then how do you restore the rule of law? And is it are we envisioning that restoration through a political process? Probably not, because we've seen. Um, in 2014 with a political process that did did not necessarily restore the rule of law. Um, And I think that that was because there was an absence of any question of accountability. It allowed a free reign, open uh, cycle of impunity to continue. Um, And it didn't create the deterrent.
2: If no institution has the like broad based if there's no broad based acceptance that an institution has the legitimacy to enforce accountability how do you get around that problem but
0: well, i'm not sure i actually agree with that because um i don't think the judiciary is a write off in libya um i think at the very senior level the judiciary has shown its independence actually since 2011 and has taken some quite brave decisions on questions of constitutional law or questions of sort of the political process as well and I think there what has happened is actually a disregard of the judiciary that has disempowered them and weaponized them because um, you know when they took quite brave decisions at the very beginning in 2009 2012 around things like the political isolation law um, that was a real opportunity for us to really push that institution and say okay you know what you're taking some very brave decisions in a really difficult environment to say we will not be a um, punitive society, and we're going to not put these kinds of laws in, and these are not constitutional. And I I, I might be over-egging that, but I think that was an opportunity where the brokers of Libya's peace and the international community chose to really disregard that institution, and with time, it became disempowered, and with time, it's become influenced. But to their credit, at several points, they've actually um, declared themselves sort of suspended instead of taking a bad decision. And so I think the judiciary is not a write-off in Libya. And if the same level of love and care was given to the judiciary and to strengthening that institution, including physically strengthening its physical presence and providing the security that we do give to the political actors, then we might have seen a slightly more different balance of power come 2014 and thereafter, when there were substantive questions of law where the judiciary didn't feel empowered to take the right decision or were bullied into the wrong decision. And so I, I think that's one element. We've also seen a disregard to legal processes in Libya by the international actors who are broken this, so Anzimil and the like, who have chosen to act with or recognize a government that was not legally constituted and which was held by a, by a court dis, 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 disregarding whether you might agree or not with the decision. This was a, a decision made in a court of law that was disregarded by the international actors. And that undermines the rule of law. And I think, for, for me, those two, you know, those two elements of where the funding and where the support has come from the international actors and what institutions they're choosing to strengthen and endorse. For example, I mean, I know this is not your theme, but there is not an insignificant amount of um, support and training, etc., given to the Libyan Coast Guard for expedient reasons. If that same level of interest was given to the judiciary, then that might have been different. And then the second element is actually proactively ignoring judicial rulings does not help strengthen the rule of law. And so I think there is scope to strengthen those institutions and to respect their decisions and to, um, again, when we talk about inclusion-exclusion, look at who's disregarding the decisions and, and, and forcing that. There's many times all over the world that we, dis- we, we disagree with a legal ruling, but we still are bound by it. And that's the point of the rule of law. So I think that is a really key point. If we're then going to try to push accountability, you can't do that unless you respect the decisions. You can't then pick and choose. And I think that applies to every actor in Libya, including the international actor. So I think that's the one point. The other point on this kind of how you enshrine the rule of law and accountability, it is a piecemeal thing. So in addition to kind of actually strengthening, training, endorsing the judiciary, it is also empowering civil society who are filling the gap in a lot of this. Um, and again, there we're seeing a redirection of support in civil society to civil society that does more non-controversial humanitarian work than those who are trying to push an agenda of accountability or looking at to seek mechanisms abroad so i don't think it's a write-off i think it is piecemeal but actually there's quite a few mechanisms there and then there's obviously given the fact that the libyan process is very heavily led by the u.n mission and supported by international actors and endorsed heavily on both sides by international actors there is the accountability at the international level so we don't need to look at the failed institutions in Libya as our comfort to, well, there's no real accountability or rule of law, because we can go up a level or up two levels. And I think that's what is missing here. So again, the ICC is not an institution we all love and adore, but it is one that's available to Libya. And again, the international actors are not giving it enough support financially for the Libya file, but also morally by pushing Libyan actors to abide by it. So I do think there is room to build this in. And I think it's actually not sort of particularly difficult to build it in, but it's just the political will of those involved to genuinely prioritize this and see it as an ingredient to peace building and not an obstacle to peace building.
2: I, I think one of the difficulties is that there has been... So, so much of the focus of the peace negotiations has been through these institutions, has been through the HOR and the GNC and so forth. And I think that negotiations have become mired in a sort of incredibly intractable conversation over who is, um, who is legally recognized, who has legitimacy, um, and so forth. And I think it's, in some respects, I think it's made the job of negotiations much more difficult. And these, these institutions have been given, I think, um, a disproportionate veto over the whole process and have forced us to engage in um a sort of legalistic in in a sort of legalistic um environment in which we have no legal answers right so i mean so so i think that we're, we're kind of that there's a bit of a worst of both worlds if that makes sense but i think your idea of building in so firstly not ignoring the libyan judiciary i think is is a really important point and secondly, your point in civil society, I think, is really crucial. And, th- and this is actually also slightly gets us back to the question of inclusion. And I think what you want to make sure is at the same time you're including the power brokers, you're also empowering civil society so that they become mutually reinforcing things so that, civil- so that the power brokers have to be accountable to civil society and civil society can influence what the power brokers are trying to do, if, if that makes sense.
0: No, I agreed. And I mean, you know, we we used to joke that when we were looking at the list of the proposed 200 people or so that would be invited to the national dialogue. And, you know, I mean, partly ego, but partly factual. Like, why are we there? You know, who is at this table? And how have we decided that these are the 200 people that represent the Libyans who will genuinely get a deal? And especially as this is meant to be the national kind of wider dialogue and not just the political elite. I mean, I I still think political elite is is an oxymoron in the Libyan context. Um, but it's so for us it's that you know we joke about it and it, it might be a bit of ego on our part
1: and and who makes the decision that you you know that these 200 people are the political elite that should be taking the country forward
2: well i think that i think that's also i think the so i think an element of peace of peace negotiations have to be have to take place in private but actually i think a lot of it can take place in public. And I I actually think think one of the problems with some of the UN processes so far is that they've been so shrouded in mystery that nobody's really known what's going on. I mean, I I I have a degree of sympathy because you can't do all of these negotiations in public because in some respects you give ammunition to people who want to make sure the process never works. But I think there is a balance.
0: You can't trust something that you know nothing, nothing about, but I don't want to sort of I, I I'm conscious that we're getting to the point of perhaps sounding a little bit bitter and just moaning about not being invited to the party um and want to look forward to
1: i'm i'm gonna I'm gonna contest that because it isn't you know necessarily, yeah, we joke- you know why wasn't I invited, but as a joke, I think that what needs to be done though is that there were 200 people, um, 200 individuals chosen to participate. There has to be an element of transparency around this process. And speaking with a lot of people on the ground at the time, no one even knew what was happening. We didn't even know whether they were going to go ahead with this or not. And so, and and that just shows that um, if you are in the process of, of, of trust building this is not the way to go about it and and to take a country out of crisis this is not the way to go about it either
2: i don't disagree with that but i would go back to my point before which is that inclusion is the hardest nut to crack so um i think i don't necessarily and nobody i don't think necessarily has any real silver bullets about how to crack that nut but it but it is I agree that there has to be a certain degree of transparency to it. I think um sort of looking forward slightly, I think there's there's a there's a general point that I have kind of about designing peace processes and and where their focus should be. I mean, I think Libya's peace processes so far have been, as I said, like the LPA have been super sort of national level and about creating institutions and so forth. I think that jars slightly with some of the kind of key lessons from other peace processes which is that they have to really um, reflect and replicate the reality of politics on the ground as they are and I think the political reality in Libya is not one where you have strong national institutions where you have a strong central state it's highly fragmented and highly fragmented politics can only be consolidated through like gradual incremental deal making and so forth if you try and put a a strong sort of national level political deal on top of that it's going to jar with the, the fragmentation below it and is always going to break and i think that's part of the reason why the lpa break is it was it, it broke as it was essentially running against these tectonic plates of highly localized fragmented politics so i think what you know. It, Going forward, what what I think is would be better to have would be a kind of series of deals and and that start locally <clears throat> and look to work their way their way up as a way in, and, and I think that will also help to kind of build trust. It will help to um, so so a kind of bottom a bottom up that meets a top down. If that makes sense.
0: Did we just fix it? I think we did. <laughs> I mean, in a very vague
2: way. I would I would also say, and this is this will be a really particularly uplifting way to. Um, and as um you know, uh, peace processes fail, uh, they almost always fail. <laughs> in the long history of peace processes across the world, I think more have failed than have succeeded. I think the key point for me is that they fail in a helpful way. <laughs> um, uh, that they fail in a way where it leaves a foundation for negotiations to carry on again at some point, where there is Um, enough trust between people there hasn't been a deepening of fragmentation so I think that the focus in some ways needs to be on how to fail well um, and (laughs) not how to make things worse I mean I think in in my view the failure of the LPA made things worse because I think it increased fragmentation, it created sort of paper elites um, and so I I think we should always be looking through a political process, right, we should always be looking at where is this heading both in terms of like broader state building, um, bringing in accountability and, you know, looking towards transitional justice, connecting with grassroots, but also about if this doesn't work, where are we going to be left in six, 12 months time? So I think this idea of looking through peace processes is really important. We get super bogged down in the day to day and that's, um, that's not helpful for state building
0: this feels like it sets us up for a sequel um jeff but thank you so so much that was um there's a lot of meat in that
1: and and very um inspiring yeah no i mean so. <laughs> it's it actually you feel more uh, optimistic
2: you know we all know libya well we also know that libyans all talk to each other um and so i, I think there's a lot of I, I'm, I'm sorry I, I'm going back to <laughs> these kind of buzzwords, but there is a lot of elite bargaining happening on the ground already. People are talking to each other. People are working things out. Um, there's a lot of animosity and so forth, but there's stuff that we can work with. And, you know, local ceasefires, local trust-building measures is, to my mind, going to be way more successful than trying to shoehorn in some kind of national level something.
0: And I also, as a motto for life, I think fail well is... Yeah, I like is that. Is I'm going to take that away. I'm going to fail well.
2: I keep going and, 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 and. I also want to make the point that what you want to be careful of in focusing on the local level is that you don't institutionalize the kind of justice problems that, you know, because justice has always the recourse has been to the local and the informal, and that's just institutionalize the cycle of violence. So I suppose a note of caution to my own advice would be that you have to make sure that you're not institutionalizing the negatives of localism.
0: Thank you. May we all fail well. May we all fail well.
1: <laughs> Thank you so much for listening. If you enjoyed the show, please leave us a five-star review on iTunes. This will help us get discovered and keep growing. If you would like to suggest any guests or topics for future episodes, please let us know on our Facebook page, Libya Matters, or tweet us at Libya Matters Pod. This episode was hosted by Ilham Saoudi and myself, Marwa Mohammed, produced by Tariq al-Miri. The people who put it all together are Linda Patumi, Ilham Saoudi, and myself, Marwa Mohammed, along with our interns, Marianne Souze and Ahmed Madi. Libya Matters is made possible by our partnership with international media support, IMS. Thank you for listening to Libya Matters. Tune in next week for a new episode.